So it's a uh, great pleasure to welcome you to the 2001 Spencer Trask Public Lecture. Um, about two and a half years ago, maybe I should tell you who I am before I start, I'm, I'm not Robert Full. Um, I'm Philip Holmes, I'm in uh, Engineering and Applied Mathematics uh, here at Princeton. And about two and a half years ago, at a rather unusual workshop involving biologists, mathematicians, robotics engineers, I heard Bob Full speak on running insects and I was instantly hooked. And this evening I think we're in for a real treat. Bob is Professor of Integrative Biology at the University of California, Berkeley. Not only does his name match his position, he's a full professor, his nature matches his department's name for he's truly an integrative person. A scholar and a researcher in the finest sense, he works on the dynamics and energetics of multi-legged animal locomotion which really means that he and his students share their lab with all kinds of strange, creeping, crawling, trotting, running, hopping creatures, some of whom you'll meet this evening. Not, I, well, maybe in the flesh, I think not, actually. His experiments, his modeling, and his analyses of rapid-running insects have inspired the design and construction of nimble-legged robots, and he's even recently impressed the U.S. Marines. He's also an award-winning lecturer who currently holds a Goldman Professorship for Innovative Teaching at Berkeley. And in fact, tomorrow he'll be speaking uh, at noon at the McGraw Center in the Frist Student Center on closing the gap between teaching and research. And there are some flyers uh, announcing that talk uh, on the edge of the platform. But beyond this, uh, it was Bob who helped the computer animators at Pixar Disney Films get the biology more or less right in the movie A Bug's Life, um, in pursuit of which he did intense research in his backyard with a video camera and his daughter's help. Bob did his bachelor's, master's, and PhD degrees at the State University of New York in Buffalo with an interlude chasing crabs in Panama. After which, and actually not just chasing crabs, we, we heard he was involved in various adventures in Panama, which may or may not come up in the lecture. After which he did postdoctoral work at Chicago and Harvard. Uh, he's held visiting positions in Göttingen and Saarbrücken, uh, but in 1986 he joined the faculty of the University of California at Berkeley, um, where he's remained and where he still is. Um, it's a great honor and a pleasure to call on Bob to deliver the 2001 Spencer Trask lecture on bipedal bugs, galloping ghosts, and gripping geckos, bio-inspiration for rapid running robots. Well, I'd like to uh, thank you for the uh, invitation, and thank you all for coming. Uh, this is the title to sort of pique your interest, but let me begin, if we could have the, the lights down a little bit, by talking about what I see is the uh, bigger picture. So if we could reduce the lights a little bit. The internet has provided us with uh, worldwide information transfer. And it's beginning to be able to see and hear things with webcams and other devices. But I believe really the next revolution is going to come because we're going to be able to do programmable work. That is, we're going to be able to give the internet legs and hands. It's going to be able to 
run, fly, and swim at your command so that you'll be somewhere but be able to be everywhere else and manipulate that environment. Now, how's that going to be possible? We're going to be able to have to create these autonomous devices. And today, I'll focus on how you might do it with something that moves on land. To do this, fortunately, we're at a great time. I think that we're truly in an age of integration that's unprecedented, in that, in particular, biology can inspire engineering, mathematics, and computer science to produce uh, novel designs, while at the same time, engineering, mathematics, and computers can deliver new devices, algorithms, and models to help understand the fundamental principles of biology. The way we do uh, the uh, discovery in biology is to provide this biological inspiration is pretty straightforward. In a sense, it's the same reason people do research in other fields. In biology, we want to understand how organisms got to be the way they are, their roots. We also, and I'll talk about this mostly, we want to understand the rules by which they're built, how they work. Of course, this makes up the basic fundamental research that's so important that will lead to relevance, sort of how it helps humans, organisms, and the environment. And that's the applied end, and hopefully we can somehow take this basic fundamental information and apply it in some uh, fashion. Let me show you how uh, this path really looks. What I want to do is to go through and tell you that of how we can understand, in terms of the animal or biology side, or build, with respect to the engineering side, autonomous mobile systems. And I'll argue there are at least four key enablers that uh, are going to be important that include design concept, energy management, multifunctional actuators or motor-like things, and a reliable interaction with the environment. Now, fortunately, natural technologies offer splendid solutions to think about designs. The problem is they're hard to understand and they're hard to measure the things you want to measure to know about them. But let me show you some of this locomotor diversity uh, in this first uh, video clip. And you can see the types of creatures that we look at to discover the secrets of uh, nature. So first you'll see the sort of typical uh, setting that you might expect uh, someone to be studying locomotion. Here's a human running on a treadmill with the measuring of energetics. There isn't any reason you can't do it with organisms like this. This is a cockroach running on a treadmill. Exercising. Here's another species. Here's an uh, eight-legged scorpion. Here's an ant, a six-legged ant, and here's a 44-legged centipede. Eight-legged crab. Here's an insect, a cockroach, we're looking at underneath and we're able to look at its motion this way and mark it and then able by having three high-speed cameras that operate at 1,000 frames per second, we're able to reconstruct by direct linear transformation its 3D kinematics or its motion. And so from that we can get position, velocity and acceleration and understand exactly how it moves in three-dimensional space. Now in addition to motion, to really understand how organisms move, you also have to have forces. And here's a force platform, which is just a fancy scale that not only measures forces in the up or down direction, but also sideways and uh, fore aft in the direction of motion. But even more importantly, not only do you want to measure the whole body and its forces, but wouldn't it be great if you could measure the individual legs of any animal? 
And so we develop a technique to do it where we take a polarizing filter that you see there and put one above and below a slab of photoelastic material. And the animals then run on this photoelastic material and as they stretch these long chain polymers, light comes through. The bigger the spot of light, the greater the force and it's skewed in a certain direction so we can tell something about the direction of that force. There's one going slower. And now you'll see some uh, animals moving a little bit faster. We're able to capture those spots and uh, qualitatively estimate those forces that you see there and figure out how the animal moves. The interesting thing about this is this photoelastic material is jello. The first time uh, we did it at work, my student went to the store, bought some orange-flavored jello, made up the jello. The animal ran on it, and immediately we saw what the forces were. The problem is the animal stopped and began eating the apparatus. <laughs> okay, if you stop the video. Now we use unflavored jello, and we can get then the motion and the forces we need to understand how these very seemingly diverse organisms move. Now, one of the problems in extracting them the principles to use for inspiration is that we have to understand our design concept. And this is a, a difficult uh, issue. As a biologist, you would think I would advise the engineers to copy nature. We just saw it spectacular. Here's my advice. I think that's a big mistake to copy nature in most cases because, of course, we know evolution works on a just-good-enough principle, not optimality or perfection. In fact, natural technologies must do uh, these things and are under severe constraints that would be insane to produce an engineer under. For example, organisms must grow. They must start off to be this big and they start off to be, then they get to be that big and they must function all the way through their growth. This affects their final design. Engineers aren't constrained that way. Organisms must be multifunctional. Not only do they uh, run, but they also fight and mate and do things that you may not want to build into your particular a robot. They, for example, have long abdomens in some cases. And you say, well, I should build that because that organism must be perfect for running. And I'll tell you, inside it is a factory to make itself. Engineers haven't figured out how to do that yet, so necessarily you might not want to add that into your design. Also, uh, organisms uh, must follow an inherited plan. They have evolutionary baggage from the past that they modify in certain ways, and you wouldn't necessarily want to copy that. For example, we have vestigial organs, and why would you put them in if you didn't understand something about their function? So in general, this is a challenge uh, with respect to direct copying. In fact, I would argue if you look through history thus far, only in the most gross sense have we been able to benefit from looking at natural technologies with respect to direct copying. Uh, we know that if you look at uh, human technologies, they tend to be large where nature is small. They tend to be sort of flat with right angles where nature is curved. They tend to be stiff while nature is designed to bend and twist. They tend to have rolling devices like wheels and axles and things where nature uses appendages. And they have very few actuators or motors and sensors where nature has a huge number. Quite different, actually. So what are we arguing we should do instead of direct copying? we argue that you should be inspired by the biology. That is, you should use concepts and analogies when they're advantageous to extract those principles out of the biology and use them. Nature provides useful hints really at what's possible, but, and this is very important, and I'll show you some examples of that today, as human technology takes on more of the characteristics of nature, then nature does in fact become a more useful teacher. The problem is that to extract these principles from organisms, they're incredibly complicated, even something we think as simple as a cockroach. They have so many parts or degrees of freedom that we can't even write a number for them. 
but we must abstract some principles from it. And one way to do it is to develop a modeling hierarchy, either mathematical or physical. And what we need to do at some level is to create a template, a very simple general model that can serve as sort of a, a target of control to understand the movement. For example, wouldn't it be great if you could take this organism and reduce it down to a little mass sitting on top of a spring, despite the fact that it has all those muscles and joints and legs, uh, and, and to make something as simple as that only two things can change. Now, if you could do that, it wouldn't be enough, because it wouldn't allow you to answer rich questions about the organism. You also need to anchor this model in something more elaborate and representative of the organism that answers your questions. You might want to put many legs on it and joints and increase the complexity a bit, but you want to then get at your fundamental questions by making that kind of model. And this approach, I think, is really critical to extracting those principles for biological inspiration. Now, one of the things we know to, to understand or build autonomous mobile systems is important is energy management with respect to both storage and return and stability. It's been hypothesized that animals with many legs uh, by, by Sir James Gray, with many legs, should move like a wheel. They should, in fact, not slow down and speed up very much. They should be, very much, they should be able to just move, move smoothly like an automobile. You don't want to sort of step on the gas and hit the brake, and that doesn't make sense. And many-legged animals should be able to do this. The question is, do they? It's a good hypothesis. Well, what you see, and I'll show you this in many-legged animals in general, is that they move different ways depending on how fast they go, but two templates at present are sufficient to explain most of their motion. When you walk, you function like this. Here's a leg, here's your body, and at this point in the cycle in walking, it's at its highest position, so you have your greatest potential energy. As you take a step forward, you start to fall this way, and that potential energy goes into the energy of motion, or kinetic energy. And what's interesting, though, is that then on the next step, you can recapture that kinetic energy back as potential energy and save as much as 70% of the energy that would otherwise be provided by muscles. In other words, walking is really like an inverted pendulum, a very simple model. So if you take a pendulum, what I just described, and you swing it like this, if you turn it up this way, this is the model for walking. And many organisms fit this, this kind of very, very simple uh, model. In doing so, you slow down and speed up a lot. But it's effective because you're exchanging the energy back and forth, not just throwing it away. If we go faster, another template is appropriate, and that is a spring-loaded inverted pendulum, as I wrote on the other slide. Or we can't say that because we're sort of biomechanists and engineers, but it's like a pogo stick, basically, with a mass sitting on top of a spring. And you have all the energy of motion and height initially, and you come and crash down to the ground and slow down. You compress your spring, and you store it as elastic energy, maybe in your tendons if you're a human. And then you bounce off again, uh, creating that kinetic potential energy and getting it back again. So the template for running is just like a pogo stick. Here's a person. Obviously, they're slowing down and speeding up. But what's valuable is they're able to capture that energy, store it, and then return it again. Now the question, and here you can see how they're oscillating uh, together, the kinetic and potential energy in this case. Now the question you have, should have is how general is this? You can see it for bipeds or humans, but what about uh, looking at other organisms? What's amazing to me is we found that this kind of model that produces these kinds of forces is seen not only in kangaroos, but in two-legged uh, uh, bipeds, four-legged runners, six-legged runners, and even eight-legged animals like crabs. How could that be? 
Well, basically, the two legs of the bouncing kangaroo work like one of your legs. Or two legs of a trotting dog working together work like one of your legs. Three legs working as one of your legs function in a cockroach. Or four legs working together uh, function in a, in a crab. Basically, you have two sets of alternating propulsors that you're bouncing on one after the other. And they all produce these same kind of force patterns. So yes, it does mean if we measure the ground reaction force patterns of Phil Holmes, they are, in fact, the same as what you find in a cockroach. <laughs> now, it's so general that you can take this and say, well, if you really were to measure something about this spring, would you see similarities in it? Is it that similar? And you could do that. You can compare the stiffness of the spring. The stiffness of the spring is just how much force you need to compress that spring. So it's force divided by compression. And you can kind of normalize it for size, because animals, some of them are small and some of them are real big. So you can normalize force relative to weight and the compression of that spring relative to the, the length of their leg or their hip height. And if you do that and plot how stiff that spring is for really diverse organisms against how big they are in size or their mass, you find that they're all the same. That the relative stiffness of an individual leg spring of a cockroach is the same as a crab, a quail, a hare, a dog, a kangaroo, or a human. So this simple template really can explain uh, the behavior in these very, very diverse organisms, despite the fact they're different skeletons and different numbers of legs and, uh, and different evolutionary histories, that simple model seems to uh, work remarkably well. Now, that's modeling in, the, in this plane, sort of the vertical or sagittal plane, this way. I had an interesting experience uh, in uh, being able to work with uh, Pixar on an uh, animated uh, children's movie called a, a Bug's Life, where we talked about the fact that uh, they wanted to make these ants uh, bipedal, operating more in the sagittal plane, up and down. And of course, I said, well, you know, that can happen, but as I'll show you later. But, you know, mostly they, work, they went on six legs and they move in the horizontal plane, you know, sort of like this. They don't, they don't do this kind of thing. And, and I was we were talking about those issues, and of course, they, they wanted to make a movie, and I was thinking about Newton's physical things. And so, but what they did in this incredibly creative group is ask me a critical question. They said, wait a minute, uh, why are you modeling things in the sagittal plane, like you just talked about, if insects move in the horizontal plane? I said, well, nobody ever did that before. This is a good idea. We should do this. And so we went on to do just that, to look at organisms sort of from the top down and look at their forces on the ground. And we found something very unusual. We found, for example, an insect only pushes backwards with its front leg. Its middle leg kind of works like our leg. It slows it down and speeds it up but the hind leg only pushes it forward. And there are big forces pushing out to the side. Interestingly enough, roboticists have written papers on the, how you should never do this. This is a, this is a bad way to build a, build a robot. And uh, yet, if we look at a bunch of animals, we found that they all tend to do the same thing. So this was very intriguing, why you saw uh, these large lateral and opposing leg forces when they seem to be disadvantageous in a robot design. Well, what was interesting is then we took that and we tried to model it. We said, here's a cockroach, we're biologists, that's what our model looks like, it's sort of a body. We put some forces on it uh, and we, we let it go and we found something that was very surprising. The problem, as Phil Holmes mentioned, was people were pretty skeptical about it. They didn't quite believe the model and the result and they didn't particularly believe the math in it. So what do you do and when you're faced with this problem? What you do is you go to the world's best mathematicians 
and they're at Princeton, and you bring them in on the project uh, to gain uh, expertise and credibility. And so Phil Holmes collaborated, and John Smith is a student, in trying to abstract a template from this anchored model. Uh, and they did so. They said, here's the animal uh, with its three legs, and we can abstract it, those three legs, as a single spring. Three legs can act as a single spring, but not in the sagittal plane this time, but in the horizontal plane. And so they made a model that does this. It first bounces to this side, so as you go, compresses, so it bounces this way, and then comes back, and then bounces back this way. So instead of bouncing up and down, you're still doing that, but you also apparently are bouncing side to side like this. And we believe, we're getting hints now, and we're working on this paper today, uh, that this also may be quite general. You see the same kind of force patterns for this lateral leg spring model in explaining how organisms may move, but we're actively working in this uh, particular area. Uh, and then uh, Phil and his student have created a relatively simple model with a number of different uh, parameters, and I don't understand some of the math stuff, but you know, it's a great model for telling us what organisms might be doing, but that's why we're working with them. Uh, what's fascinating about it, and what we found in our original paper, was if you take this model and you push it, you perturb it, you give it some, some kind of, uh, of impulse here, uh, what you find is that it ultimately becomes stable again. It passively self-stabilizes without any neural reflexes, or without a brain. It does through just by the springiest nature of the legs and their, and their arrangement and how it moves. And you can trace that with these particular uh, variable. So this self-stabilizing behavior was quite uh, surprising. We wondered um, uh, about it more and what it could do. We were looking at animals, and I'll show you some video of this, running over terrible uh, surfaces, and we thought they couldn't really be able to do this, but there's some evidence now they appear to be self-stabilizing by using this very simple idea of springy legs. There's a cockroach running over a, a terrible surface. I'll show you some, some videos of it. They appear to be extraordinarily stable. So it tells us some lessons. It says that the control algorithms for moving around can be embedded in the form of the animal itself. That control can result from the property of their parts and their morphology, that muscles and skeletons and leg segments and legs, in a sense, can do computations on their own without even involving the nervous system. In fact, let's produce a new model to think about control. You normally think about this in a very simple way. You sort of have the nervous system and the brain that sends signals to the muscles, the muscles interact with the environment, and you go somewhere. If somehow you're not going where you want to go and you get perturbed and moved around, you know what you do. You have a reflex, you sense something, you send information back to the nervous system, it corrects it, and you go on your way. But there's a part of this missing from what we see, and that's this loop. It says that your interaction with the environment can also stabilize itself if you have sort of springy legs or mechanical parts that can assist in self-stabilizing. You can have mechanical feedback as well as sensory feedback. The interesting thing about this is if, you, if, you have a, if you're doing it by reflex, of course, and you get perturbed, then you have to sense a few things, send a signal back, figure out what it is, or your spinal cord, send a signal back to the muscles, and correct. If you just had a springy leg, then as you get perturbed, it could immediately push you back this way if it's formed in the right way. And uh, that's why one of my colleagues, Jerry Loeb at USC, has termed this a preflex. That is, it can act before a reflex, actually. And the combination of these two, we believe, uh, can lead to extraordinary stability and performance.
Now, what's really exciting about this is engineers couldn't use this really effectively in the past. Why? Because they wouldn't do what my colleague and collaborator at Stanford could do, Mark Kukowski. He developed a technique called shape deposition manufacturing that allows the embedded sensors and actuators into components like this. He built this crab leg where he can etch it and uh, form it into any shape you want and give it uh, material properties. He can embed springs and motors in it. In fact, it's more fantastic than that. Uh, he's able to mix heterogeneous materials into these, uh, these leg-like structures so that you can change their material properties in particular locations. He can start now building smart structures as a result of this process. For example, here, this is a very stiff element, the clear part, and the white part is very compliant. So he can make a moving appendage without having axles in it. So you can now build uh, this control into the material properties, much like we see in the animals. We think this is really going to revolutionize the, the robot building and make incredible things possible. In fact, they have built now a biologically inspired bouncing robot with springy legs that can't sense the environment but still moves remarkably well. They call it sprawl. Uh, my colleague Dan Kodacek and Martin Bueller, Dan Kodacek at the University of Michigan and Martin Bueller at McGill, uh, have taken this a step further and basically producing a biologically inspired ro bouncing robot called Rex for robot hexapod that has springy legs, can't sense the environment, but is autonomous. It runs freely out in, uh, in nature using these same sort of very simple principles. Now, this is interesting because it can have broad applications. Uh, I'm on a, a group that's called the Biomorphic Explorers Group for the Jet Propulsion Lab that very much wants to improve on Sojourner so we can search for life in craters in very rough terrain. And they basically want to use biological inspiration to, over time, maybe in, in 10 years or so, get to a point where they have highly maneuverable robots, but from very simple principles. In addition, of course, if you understand these, these templates, these simple mechanisms, there isn't any reason now why you can't start improving on mechanisms that use these that help, for example, the handicap. And uh, here's an example of a, of a, of a flex foot where uh, it's tuned to the, to the runners. Uh, now that we know more about this, this can be improved greatly in the future. And you're going to be able to have uh, quite uh, incredible performance, possibly even better than what you can do with natural legs. Let me show you some video of this, of the animals uh, walking and running and some robots walking and running in the uh, next uh, clip. First, you'll see some of uh, the mechanisms of walking. Okay, this is what I'm saying. It's a pendulum walking when you go slow. So you have the energy transfer from uh, kinetic energy here, or potential energy here, down to kinetic, back to potential, and swinging back forth. Now you flip it up. And you're doing the same thing. You're exchanging this energy, not throwing it away, as you're walking. So if you're in uh, this position here, when you first put your foot down, you have all the kinetic energy. Then you're at mid-stance, and you have all the potential energy that's been exchanged from here to here. And now the potential energy goes back into the energy of motion as you fall forward. And you exchange it back and forth. Look what you can do with this. This is Tad McGear, 10 years ago, building a robot with no motors, with no sensors, with no brains, and it walks down an incline. It's, a, it's, a, it's the ultimate of this passive, dynamic behavior. Right? When you get it right, and you extract these principles, you can build something that's spectacular. All right? Very simple and beautiful uh, walking mechanism. Now what we showed, surprisingly, was crabs could use this. 
Here's a crab walking on a treadmill, and it can exchange as much as 50% of its energy by this inverted pendulum mechanism as it moves. And that led to a robot built by iRobot or IS Robotics called Ariel, uh, which can move both on land and underwater with a very simple uh, sort of design. Uh, it's one of the uh, first-legged amphibious uh, robots uh, trying to extract these same kind of uh, principles. So now you see that it can uh, actually get out in the, uh, into the environment. All right, the running model, when you go faster, is different. Uh, what you see is uh, spring mass behavior. Uh, so here's the crab. Now, it doesn't look like it's bouncing along. You can say, how could it possibly use the same kind of mechanism as I do? Watch when we slow it down, what happens? You'll start to see this bouncing now. It's just that it happens at a quite high frequency. So you can see it bouncing with each step. It's very much like what you do, and it is really equivalent to a pogo stick. Now you can see this in the insects where three legs sum together to work like one of your legs as they're bouncing along. Take a look. There's these three legs work together, and watch, they exchange with the next three, and the next three, and now you can see this thing just bouncing along in a very, very simple way. They just do it with more legs or sort of distributed out. Now you say, wait a minute, this isn't running. They're not leaving the ground. Is it running when you leave the ground? No, we redefined running to be bouncing. And it's really running like Groucho Marx. You're really running with bent legs. In fact, Tom McMahon uh, showed that humans could do this, run with bent legs without an aerial face but still bounce, and he produced a dimensionless vertical velocity called the Groucho number to characterize this behavior. And this Groucho number shows that you can still bounce around but, but not leave the ground. Now, the question you might have is, are there any uh, many-legged animals that leave the ground then? Are they all sort of stuck to the ground like I was talking about? The answer is no, they're not. Uh, this is a very fast animal, the American cockroach. Uh, you think you don't have it in your kitchen. Uh, if, you do have, if you do see it, they have a lot of them. Uh, they're really fast animals. And here it is running on a treadmill at a very slow speed. And I want you to notice its body position. Its body position is basically parallel with the treadmill when you see it running. But watch what happens when you see the sort of fastest run ever by an insect. It's going to go one and a half meters a second, and it moves its legs 50 times in one second. It takes 50 steps a second. When it does so, it tips up and only runs on its two back legs. It becomes bipedal when it does that. Now you might ask, does any animal then move like a wheel? That seemed like a really good idea. This is the closest to it. This is a stomatopod from Panama that lies on its back and rolls on the beach like this. Half its cycle, it's like a wheel. It's pretty close. It's not that far away. But that's the closest thing that we've seen in trying to do this. Now what you want to do is take these behaviors and model them. Uh, here's a dynamic model built in conjunction with uh, Mark Rapert from uh, formerly from MIT, now from Boston Dynamics. Uh, this is the hexahopper, so show that you could bounce with, uh, with six legs and do uh, dynamic modeling uh, in this fashion. There's the hexahopper going at the frequency that you see the, uh, the insects really moving. So you can see now you're abstracting those principles. There's the real thing. You can see you're extracting those principles now into computer dynamics so you get a step closer to thinking about making these robots. Now here's a more anchored uh, or complex model where we sort of have all the pieces to it that we're still actively trying to understand how it produces this sort of simple uh, bouncing behavior. And it's a, it's a challenge, but uh, we're starting to uh, be able to make, make some progress on, on doing that. 
Now here, uh, given that you have those bouncing uh, strategies and you have these springy legs, what can you do with it? Well, here's the rough terrain. We thought the animal couldn't do it all and would have a very hard time. The obstacles are greater than three times your hip height. And here's what it did. This is unbelievable. It didn't even slow down. It kept its preferred speed while running through this obstacle course. Now, how is it doing that? How can it go through this and think about or very carefully measure every little perturbation that it has and then adjust it on an instant-by-instant basis with reflexes? The answer is it doesn't do that. Uh, that it's really using its beautiful form uh, with respect to the, the control being in the mechanical system with these springy legs and gets uh, quite surprising performance out of it. Now what if you take that, abstract it, inspire the engineers to use this principle, this is Mark Kukowski at Stanford and Sprawl, using the shape deposition manufactured legs, that as you give them uh, a particular spring property, and you can make a robot that does it using this uh, principle. Now, what's interesting about this robot is it's very simple. It only has sort of six degrees of freedom, or six parts that move. It can go over obstacles. It has no brain. It has no control system. It doesn't sense anything in the environment. Yet, it's as maneuverable as any, any, any legged robot that's been built so far. But it does it by having the control in the form, by having sort of smart structure. And the shape deposition technique is durable. This is a graduate student. They'd never do that with their project if it wasn't an incredible design. All right, now we can take it out in the field. Uh, this is uh, Rex, the robot hexapod, with Martin Bueller and Dan Kodacek. Now, here's Rex's sort of first journey outside. This couldn't be simpler. It only has six motors. It has springy legs. They do use the gait of the, that, of the insects uh, that, that, uh, that you see. But basically... Again, what's, uh, what's interesting about this in, this in the first pass is that uh, it has such incredible functionality for its simplicity. So now we're going to challenge it, and they actually build an obstacle course now that, that's literally the same. And so what can it do with just this, this sort of remarkable form? It does pretty well. It does much better than we'd ever imagined. And now it's been tested formally. Uh, in these test beds against, legged, against the wheeled and uh, tractor vehicles, and it does really well. We start to understand why legs are advantageous. Wheels and tractors are very good on roads, but in rough terrain, the legs do uh, extraordinarily well. Here's the uh, adventure into the forest, which is a pretty nasty uh, environment. There it goes. And it, do it does extremely well. Now, what we have to realize here is that's very simple. It doesn't have any joints yet. It only has sort of six motors in it. It doesn't have any kind of a feet. They're very crude, as are the legs. It doesn't have any eyes. It can't feel anything yet in the environment. Wait until you see this when it has the sensors on it. And it really can understand what's in the environment. You will have a feeling uh, in, your, in your stomach that this, I predict, will be will be something that's, that's alive, because it will have those characteristics. Here it is for the Jet Propulsion Lab, going into a rocky surface as if it was going down a cliff uh, in Mars or uh, in something like, like Europa. Here's the cliff. Uh, they said you couldn't do it with a simple, uh, you couldn't make a simple legged robot. This is as simple as you can get. And uh, Kodacek and Bueller have made this do this, and it's spectacularly good.
this is for NASA's benefit. I tinted it orange uh, so they could see sort of what, what might happen. It looks bad, but watch. But watch. Oh, this is going to work. Okay, stop the video. So you can see how you can biologically inspire, if you can extract the principles of nature, and do remarkably well on the engineering side. Okay, multifunctional actuators are critical to understand and build autonomous mobile systems. We study muscles of animals. Here are two. Here's a Moya Bridge from the great photography era. Took a picture of himself walking. This is a cockroach. Um, here's the electrical activity that's needed to turn on the muscles in something like a mammal, and you get muscle force out of it. Here's a pattern that you see in an insect. It also generates muscle force. Which would you pick to study first? Okay. We study this one, and it's beautiful because we can recreate the, uh, the activity quite nicely. And what we found, and my colleagues in this field has just exploded, we're able now to measure muscles as they operate in animals in the field for the first time, not as an isolated piece of tissue. And what we discovered in things like swimming scallop and birds, that muscles are good motors. They can generate about 284 watts per kilogram of power, which is very respectable. But we're discovering more about muscle and not the traditional things. We've seen that if you look at, for example, uh, turkeys and, and swimming, that muscles can also function as struts in energy transmission from sending energy to one place to another. Muscles can also operate like brakes and springs. They can absorb energy and store and return it in things like insect running or insect flight. Muscles are valuable in part not just because they're good motors, but because they're multifunctional materials. Wouldn't it be great if we could make one of these? If we could make an artificial muscle? Well, let's, let's try to build it. And we, we worked with uh, the Stanford Research Institute who came up with some great material to begin to uh, do this. And it's uh, an electroactive polymer uh, shown here. Uh, you'll see it contracting and expanding as it's being turned on. It's just a polymer film sandwiched between two compliant electrodes. Uh, it's, in, it's in compressible polymer, so when you squeeze it, it squirts out at the end. And this, we believe, is the beginning of one of the most promising uh, materials for artificial muscles. In fact, what we were able to do is take that artificial muscle and put it into the same testing rig that we use for real muscle and test it just one-on-one -on -one with real muscle. And here are the results. If you look at the power output of real muscle for some of the animals that have been measured against how frequently you're stimulating it, Here's where the artificial muscle lies, the electroactive polymer. It's about there. It's respectable. It's the first one that falls within the range of the parameters of natural muscle. So we think this has great, great promise in the future. And we can already put it in some devices. So SRI has put it into an insect-like uh, thorax. Uh, here's the muscle here. And it's pulling this box-like thorax, very much like you see in flying insects. And they can get the wings to flap at 300 times per second. It doesn't fly yet, that's hard, but it's a step closer because we got, the, we got the actuators working and storing and returning and producing energy to ultimately make something that can fly. Uh, so we think that this is, these are incredibly uh, promising for the, uh, for the future. They even produced a walking robot, the first one that's autonomous with artificial muscle. It doesn't move great yet, but it shows it's possible. The same kind of concept you think it can't apply to bipeds, but you're wrong, it can, 
Think back to the McGear Walker. Well, here, uh, Ron Jacobs of Intelligent Infant Systems built a passive walker with artificial muscles, not these same EPAs, but other ones, that he could get a biped to move and be stable also out any reflexes, with the same idea of passive, dynamic stability. And so even humans, I think, take advantage of this very sort of simple kind of control systems that you see here. He built this uh, on a NASA uh, grant for advanced concepts to think about building a colony of humanoids on Mars 40 years in the future. So. Uh, I'd like to go in the last one, and that is, if you really want spectacular performance, you also need reliable interactions with the environment. That is, I would argue, to really be spectacular in performance, no surface should be an obstacle. And that's a hard, that's a hard task to, to accomplish. But what we do is we use the Krug principle again, as I've shown you examples. We believe that diversity really does enable discovery, and that for a large number of problems, there will be some animal of choice on which it can be most conveniently studied. And if you want to interact with the environment and do it reliably and effectively for terrestrial locomotion, you pick the gecko. Because if you've ever chased them, they can absolutely go anywhere. And so, here, and so how do we measure this? What we did is we said, okay, we're going to take a gecko and we're going to run it up a wall. And our fancy sort of scale, instead of being in the ground, we're going to stick it in the wall. And so here's our force platform in the wall, and then the animal runs up the wall this way, and we can measure all the things with fancy cameras and so forth to get its movement. What did we find? They're spectacular. They can run a meter per second up a smooth surface, and they take, take 30 steps in one second. They adhere to the wall in eight milliseconds without big attachment forces or slowing down their body at all. There's nothing that can do this kind of thing. They can detach in 16 milliseconds with no measurable detachment forces. How do they do that? And the mechanical power we measured is only 10% over the minimum possible power. Right? Anybody would want to make a climbing robot that could have these features. How do they do it? It's really, it's really quite bizarre. They actually have very special toes. If you look at the bottom of their feet, you see that they have these toe pads that contain leaves-like structure, or we call them lamellae. If we blow that up, it looks like this. And if you look carefully, you can see there's little ridges in that. It's not a solid structure, right? If we blow that area up a little bit more, you see something really interesting. Now you start to see these little hair-like structures there called seta. And you can see it looks like a rug, a mat of these. If you blow that up, now you can see them pretty well. And there's a lot of them on this individual little leaf. And if you look really carefully, you can start to see little striations at the end of an individual hair. If you blow those up, you see that on one hair, you have even more small little ends. If you blow that up, you can see what they look like. There are these little, funny, spatula-shaped things. The smallest branches on the hair, or sidae, look like spatula. And the animal has a billion of these 0.2 micron projections. This is really small. How small is it? Here's a comparison. Here's the toe pad of the animal. This is what we're looking at. Here's one hair. The gecko has two million hairs 
on its feet. And then it breaks up into these tiniest branches where an individual hair has a hundred to a thousand little spatula at the end that are only 0.2 microns. For comparison, this is one of your hairs. These are really small. They're almost unimaginably small. How do they work? Again, a collaboration with some engineers helped us greatly. What we wanted, we just said, okay, we'll just measure the forces it could generate. Well, the forces are quite small for these very, very small structures. So we were able to take a mat of hair, isolate a single hair, and then use two different measuring devices. One, to pull down on the animal. This is shown here. Here's the hair. Here's this special MEM sensor, this microelectromechanical system sensor that we use for measuring pulling down. And we also pulled it away from a wire that was stuck in the ground, a very stiff wire. Here's the hair. And we pull it this way, like you're taking the animal and pulling it off the surface this way. And we want to measure how big those forces were for the individual hair. Fortunately, uh, with a collaboration with Tom Kinney, engineer at Stanford, he had this incredible device available here, which has a sensor here and here to measure forces in two directions shown here. And he said, hey, this may be one of the only things that could measure the force of that little hair. So let's do it. And so we did. Uh, and here it is. Uh, here's the sensor. Here's the hair coming on that little sensor. And if we blow it up, there it is. There's the hair. And you can see the tiny little branches, the spatula there. And when we did it, the forces were enormous. They were so big that a patch of hairs the size of a gecko's foot could support a small child. You know, it's like 20 to 40 pounds. You could hang off something this big if all the hairs attached maximally. This was really remarkable in terms of how effective it was. Uh, now, the question is, how does it do that? How does it stick so well? There have been many hypotheses over 100 years. They include, oh, it's just friction. We tested that. We rejected it. The friction forces are way too small to explain anything you see here. Electrostatics. We can reject that. People use anti-static guns and x-ray bombardment, and the things still hold on. How about interlocking? That must be it. It's kind of like a Velcro thing. There are little indentations in the wall or something, and you can sort of grab onto like claws into the, into the wall. Nope. We can use molecularly smooth surfaces so they can't grab on by interlocking. Well, it must be suction. That, that makes sense. There are a lot of robots that use suction that go really slowly. Not suction because we get greater than one atmosphere pressure and it also works in a vacuum. That can't be it. Well, that's troubling. What about wet adhesion or capillary adhesion? Now, they don't have any glue glands and you can, they stick under water uh, and in dry air and we're doing some more testing to, to re reject this uh, conclusively. What's left? You have to go to the surface chemist and the physicists to understand this. And in fact, apparently, as someone who gave this kind of lecture before, Niels Bohr, would be happy to know that we believe it's probably van der Waals forces. That is, the forces of the atoms themselves and the interaction of the, of the um, unbalanced charge movement of the electrons at that level actually stick these tiny little spatula to the surface. And they're small forces, but when you add them up, they become quite large. So it's really a spectacular uh, mechanism. We got to look at this in some of the video and I'll show you they do something even weirder at the level of the toe to achieve this sticking kind of behavior. Alright, you have to watch closely because uh, you'll see an animal with amazing feet uh, occur right away. There it goes, you just missed it. But it just looks just like there it goes again. That's going up a wall, a meter a second. 
you can use as much of uh, uh, normal photography as possible, camera work, you can't see anything. What you have to do is slow it down to a thousand frames a second. Uh, and then here's the normal behavior, now we slow it down. This is the animal running straight up a wall in a meter a second. It does it like it's running on the level. You can hardly see any difference. They're truly spectacular at doing this. Now how are they getting those little hairs stuck so effectively in such a short period of time? Well, one way to do it is to make a gecko treadmill. Uh, it's a see-through treadmill, and you videotape it from underneath and look carefully at what they're doing with those toes and see how they're affected. Now here's a test. See if you can tell. Watch the toes of this animal carefully and see if you can uh, tell what it's doing. We're slowing it down for you. See how it puts them on and takes them off. Can you see what they're doing? It's very strange behavior. What they're able to do are peel their toes. Here's one peeling off here, peeling off there. Now watch, we'll slow it down. Uh, there's a regular motion, now we'll slow it down. Now try to watch what you see. You're looking at the animal from the side, running uphill, and you'll see it put that leg down, now it's gonna put this uh, hind leg down. There you see it, sort of unpeeling them. Now it'll, it'll pause a little bit. Now watch what happens to these toes as it begins to move forward again. You see them peel off the surface like that? What's interesting about it is it's the same thing that you would do with tape. If you put tape on the wall, you wouldn't pull down on it, you'd peel it away from the surface. Well, they do it with their toes. And what's amazing is you can use this to design robots. Watch the peeling. Very strange, right? And IS Robotics, or iRobot, then made an autonomous climbing vehicle with this principle of peeling uh, that's called the Mecho Gecko. So here you see uh, the interaction of the, uh, the, the Mecho Gecko with uh, uh, moving around. There's two versions of it. Uh, it doesn't use the hairs, because we haven't quite figured out how to make that, but we, we're working on it. But it uses the peeling and a pressure-sensitive uh, adhesive. Here are they, and I'll show you them a little, in a little more detail. Here's a, an earlier version, but using this, uh, this pressure-sensitive adhesive. The thing that was wonderful is it could use this peeling mechanism and significantly reduce the attachment and detachment forces, and that allowed them ultimately to uh, make it autonomous, because they didn't have to expend as much energy in the, uh, in the peeling process. And so we hope that we're continuing this uh, development. Uh, here it is moving up a, um, an aquarium with some uh, natural uh, technologies uh, also associated with it. The, the other version is a tractor version that works pretty well. It can transition on surfaces. It can go up a wall. It can even go up onto a, uh, onto a ceiling. Uh, here you see it moving up. Again, there's some of the, um, the natural technologies uh, that are observing uh, the mecho gecko. Uh, now it's interacting with it, sort of. It's a little bit, you know, it doesn't quite know what to do with this thing. <laughs> and then it eventually gets disturbed by that, that, that technology. It really doesn't want it to be around. Now here's a single hair and how we measured it. You'll see the hair is right there. This is a holder. Here's the hair. Here it is blowing up, touching a big wire. Now watch how when we pull down on it, it sticks. Boom, it's stuck on there. And now this tiny little hair that you can hardly see is going to pull this huge metal rod across the screen. When you do this, you can't see the hair and you don't believe you're pulling this thing. It's just phenomenally good. What's even more interesting is when it gets to a certain critical angle, as the toes peel, it detaches by itself without any additional force. So there's a critical detachment angle, and then it just comes off. Okay, if we could have the slides, the computer back. 
So what we want to do uh, next with this, and we, we started, take a gecko foot, understand the principles of the hairs, and begin to manufacture it. Ron Fearing at UC Berkeley is beginning to uh, do that, and he's made some progress recently. We've begun negotiations with, uh, with 3M, and this looks very interesting uh, for, uh, for the future. What ways might we use it? Well, one was we want to build a robot. I showed you the evolution uh, sort of of the mecho gecko. Here's a pressure-sensitive adhesive. Here's one with the tractors. We now are going to evolve it into the hexa gecko. So this is a six-legged version, and ultimately into one that has a dry self-cleaning adhesive with maybe special toes, if we can understand exactly how they work. And then this robot will be able to go anywhere. If we can understand the forces at this level, and how everything is very sticky, and how gravity matters less, uh, by looking at ants, one of our next subjects, if we can do that, we're going to be able to go further in aspiring robot design. We're going to be able to help one of my colleagues at Berkeley, Chris Peaster, and ultimately making his six millimeter silicone robot actually walk. It can't walk now. They wish it could. But imagine, if we understand the forces at that level, imagine what it's going to be like when you're going to have a swarm of six millimeter robots available to move around maybe on you or inside you. This is a very interesting possibility. It's going to happen. Uh, in addition, we believe biological inspiration could produce the first synthetic self-cleaning dry adhesive. And who knows? what kind of applications this kind of adhesive may have in the future. So, what I hope I showed you uh, tonight is that the basic research looking at how things got to be the way they are and how they work have led to relevance to applications that can help human other organisms and the environment. But you should take away from this by looking at these sort of, uh, at first glance, crazy videos cockroaches running them, that you can never tell what this path from basic to applied research looks like. I would argue it looks like that. And seldom can you trace it like we can here. Seldom can you trace it. We've been fortunate to trace it, but if you can, it looks like this. And I would argue if you can predict the path, the path from basic to applied research easily, then it's probably a pretty boring project and it's not revolutionary. You know, it's got to be things that you can't anticipate that are really novel and wonderful. And so, in conclusion, I think that simple principles from biology can inspire novel designs. That animals have control systems that are built basically into smart legs and feet and muscles and not just in brains. And that fortunately, we're in the age of integration that will allow programmable work taking advantage of new materials, giving really the internet and you uh, hands and mobility to be uh, somewhere and, and anywhere at the same time. And finally, I hope this uh, shows you by looking at this diversity of creatures that we really do need to preserve biodiversity or these secrets of nature will be lost forever. Thank you. So we'd be happy, or Bob would be happy, to take questions. Yes? I think we have a roving microphone, so wait till the microphone gets to you. <laughs> you mentioned that uh, when you design the Mecco gecko, you need to have a self-cleaning adhesive. And I'm wondering, how do the gecko's toes stay clean? 
That is a, a wonderful question. Uh, and uh, the answer is we don't know, but we did a test on it. My colleague Keller Autumn was able to uh, get some alumina particles that are very small, 0.3 microns, and gum up the animal's foot. We tried to stick them on the wall, and they didn't stick. But what was picked, and then we took uh, electron micrographs of these, and they were completely gummed up. You couldn't, couldn't see it, and they didn't stick. After five steps, they could go up the wall again. And we took pictures of them, and they were clean. All the debris had fallen between the hairs somehow. And we don't know how that works, but we're going to find that out because it's a spectacular feature. Obviously, in nature, they have to have it. Nature's really crummy. There's debris everywhere, right? And so we believe it could be quite simple with respect to the arrangement of the hairs and their stiffness and for the fact that they don't stick together. There's something about that their properties and arrangement that we don't understand that I think will lead to, to that kind of uh, function. But it's a very important function. All other glues, you know, get, get pretty dirty. So. Yes? Um, with the McGear walking model that yes. you showed early on, a, a three-legged walking model, yes. um, if that works so well, why don't we find odd-legged creatures in nature? That, I think that's a good question. Obviously, in design, there's no reason that you couldn't. But there, there of course, you need to think about evolution. And if you think about organisms, how they evolve, most of them are, tend to be bilateral. Right? So that, that's going to force that. Now, you might say we do have them. I mean, kangaroos use five legs when they go slowly. You know, they do use their tail, and so there are some sort of cases of that being possible. But in general, I think evolution drives you to, to a bilateral kind of, of design. But it isn't impossible to, to imagine an organism benefiting from that. Has, has any work been done on uh, looking into animals that have no legs, like worms or snakes? Yes. And do they offer any advantages for ability to, to cope with uh, diversified environments. Yes, yeah, so people have looked at uh, worms and uh, there's a lot of work with snakes. There's even snake robots that uh, people have uh, built. And, um, you know, so the, 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 the advantages are hard to define because often you don't compare them directly in different environments. But clearly, uh, snakes are highly mobile. They're outstanding at uh, climbing and particularly well suited, as you might expect, for going into burrows and into tunnels, which many of these robots people are interested in cleaning and, and going to pipes and so forth. And so um, I think that uh, we have to understand better what the evaluation of the performance is to, to try to answer those questions. And that's true with, with all kinds of different modes of locomotion. You know, what task are you comparing it to and, then, and what can and can't do? Many of the organisms are good because they're diverse, that they can do a variety of different things. Snakes are, are, are pretty good, but they're specialized. And they're particularly good at doing uh, climbing and bur burrowing. follow up on the uh, last question. I've often wondered whether uh, you could contribute to a better colonoscopy instrument. Oh, yeah. Oh, I think so. Absolutely. No, no. That, that, I mean, uh, uh, iRobot was working on that at one point, and I think that that's, there, there are a number of different investigators, including some in Japan, that, that have made uh, th those kinds of, of, of arrangements by looking at, you know, uh, of animals and fiber-wound animals and hydrostatic skeletons and all, all of their designs. So that, that's very possible. It seems that in nature, um, fast sprinting animals 
benefit from certain proportions of the limbs. Cheetahs, for example, have very short femurs, very short thigh bones. And as, as the thigh bone gets longer, the animal gets slower in a sprinting sense. But it seemed in these robots you're not putting much emphasis on proportions of limbs. Is that true or is that a consideration in these designs? For um, speed, is, for example. Yeah, so the, there have been robots that people have built. Uh, Mark Rapert, one of the, my collaborators, uh, has, has built spectacular bouncing robots that, in fact, are bipeds and quadrupeds, and they do have those uh, proportions. So you can use the same mechanisms with those in building robots. Uh, as you, We were looking, uh, in particular, for the advantages that you get with a sprawled, postured uh, kind of gait, but the, but uh, what you see is that the it may be the case that the stability can be better built into the mechanical system when you have the sprawl postured more legs design, and you have to build more of the control into the um, uh, the control systems proper if you're sort of doing a bouncing in the in the sagittal plane. But we're still still exploring that, so we're not ruling out you know any issues of proportion. There haven't been large uh, bipedal or quadrupedal robots that have moved autonomously quickly yet. And so we really haven't, you know, explored that, that issue. But that's, that's going to happen, I think. And uh, we'll try all different designs to look at their advantages and, and disadvantages. Over here. Um, there we go. I noticed in your videos of the slow-moving geckos that after they lifted their feet, there was some kind of residue um, behi left behind. And now yes. that may have just been moisture from the flesh, but I was wondering if you knew what that was or it's if that a, was significant. Yeah, it's, it's lab junk. It's lab dust and, and debris. We actually tried to find a glue. They don't have any glue glands, so it's hard to imagine they'd use a glue. But we actually sort of fingerprinted them and analyzed the stuff really carefully, and it just turns out to be you know, dust and, and things. Uh, so we couldn't find any sort of sticky stuff. But it shows you how easily they get rid of that. And you can see it right there. When they get gummed up, it comes right off. Back there. Great. Have you, or is it possible to work on animals that don't have reflexes, but preflexes? That's a great question. And so uh, most animals, of course, have both. That's kind of why it's nice to build a physical model, a robot, where you can remove them easily. It's kind of hard to remove them in animals, although experiments have been done where you can uh, remove the sensory information coming in, and even some information from the brain. And remarkably, in things like um, uh, cats and even in some insects, uh, they can still move quite well. And so they're using uh, these sort of more preflex-like mechanisms to a greater extent in doing it. But as you'd expect, the motion is never as good as when you combine those two. So our real goal is to understand what the reflexes are really doing relative to what the mechanical system behavior is. And we believe when you put those together, then you'll have a true understanding of neuromechanical integration and control and be able to you know, much better understand the animals and how they work and then build even, uh, even better robots doing it. That was a superb question. Over here. On your uh, spring constant versus mass, yes, you said uh, over large range that you have uh, very close, uh, you know, almost. Linear. Actually, there's about a spread. I think about a factor of almost ten. Yes. Right. Yeah. 
Now, um, why do you think it has such a large variation? Well, I think it's, it's relative to the question you're asking. If you looked at the range of body masses, there are probably eight orders of magnitude there. So one, one order of magnitude is really small relative to that. But, but I think that what, the, the way that people use body mass, which gets exactly at your question, is what you want to do is look at the general trends because they tell you something. But at the same time, at any given mass, you want to look at the variations from that because they may be using a different mechanism that's really uh, advantageous or it may reveal to you a, a constraint about their design that isn't very uh, good for, for that kind of motion. So what we want to do is capture both of those pieces of information. Now what it means is there's something we don't understand about our simple sort of pogo stick template when one can go lower, less stiff or great. Now how do they do that and what does it mean? Are they more effective that way or less effective? You want to look at both the variation across mass as well as the variation in form at a given mass. Well, here's my follow-up on the point. Um, you took a sort of like a static model because it's just simple uh, spring constant kind of arrangement. But the, you're actually thinking about the, an animal trying to carry out a motion. It must be some energy consumption involved. Yes. So perhaps right. you really haven't found the right, the perfect model to, to uh, simulate that. The really thing is to figure out or think along what is the most efficient way or, or spend yes. a minimal amount of energy right. to carry out this motion. Right, exactly. Now, the, the most efficient would be this model if you could store and return all the energy. That would, be, that would be the best possible. You can serve it completely. That would be the best possible. But what you have is what you suggest. Animals actually absorb energy uh, and they lose it, so they have to generate some of it by muscles and put it back in. So the, so the next appropriate model that we've done is to put um, something that absorbs energy in, in it, a damper. Uh, so you have a spring and a damper. And then you need also to put in an actuator that can pr put back in some of the energy. And then that starts to get closer to what the organisms are, are really doing. But I think what's remarkable is that, that it suggests that, that they all follow this general uh, pattern. And it may be that some of them, and it's, and it's certainly true, that some of them, like a kangaroo, are really very spring-like whereas others really require uh, more actuation and greater uh, generation of energy because they, they lose more of it. But that may be important with respect to not energy, but with respect to control. They may have an advantage in using those techniques. So we haven't uh, then begin to explore that next level, but that's, that's the way you need to do it in the future. Yes? You talked a lot about using general principles in biology, and I'm curious about the most general principle of all. Um, what do you think about the possibilities of using um, robots that design robots to sort of direct evolution and sort of select out robots that fulfill some, you know, applied purpose? Granted, you don't understand necessarily as yeah. much about what's going on in the system, but in order to solve problems, that might be useful. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a very interesting possibility. People have explored this you know, less in robotics and more in dynamic simulation. So individuals like Carl Sims and other people have actually tried to evolve moving structures from very simple parts. And they found some really interesting things. They found sort of crazy forms, ones that were much, much like animals, and novel ways to, to move. So I don't think there's any reason, ultimately, once you can have self-assembly occur, in robots that you can't start doing this kind of selection process and, and see what you get. And I think it'll be a very interesting uh, exercise. Um, how, you were talking about how the animals 
use this pendulum or spring-like mechanism to conserve some of their energy. How do they change direction without losing their energy? Oh, so that's, that's an interesting question. So what uh, we're proposing happens, and you can measure in the animals, is that they essentially produce a, a very uh, slight uh, destabilization or a, a small modification uh, in their force that does disrupt that, that pattern for a short time, maybe a step or two. Uh, and that can then uh, change it. So if you need to make a turn, then it isn't surprising that you have to add energy to that system. And you turn on muscle to maybe generate a slightly greater force, or you have to turn off a muscle uh, to reduce it. So you do need to manage energy of, in the system because you lose it and input it. But uh, you can do quite simple things to, to produce a turn by uh, producing a temporary uh, destabilization and then letting the system correct itself again. Well, there are some animals that can, well, as they say, turn on a dime. You don't know. Well, do you know how that can happen? Yeah, so I, yeah, I don't know which ones you're thinking about. But the, the insects are probably the best at it. They can, yeah, you know, in one step, they can make a 60-degree turn. And we actually measure the forces with the, with the jello and how they do that. And all they do is produce a slightly greater force with the outside middle leg for one step, and they create the turn. So it's not what you see in typical robots. Typical robots to turn take bigger steps with the outside legs and smaller ones with the inside, and then they go like this. In the animal, you just see a slight change in the force development from the normal pattern, and then they produce the turn. Okay, thanks. This one down here. Or you have a question? I have one too, but... Okay. Um, well, I can ask it pretty quick, I think. Um, I'm not sure about that applicability, but in terms of um, the efficiency of storing potential energy and turning it to kinetic energy. Um, have you thought about looking at maybe martial arts moves, which have probably undergone thousands of years of cultural evolution at least? Oh, you mean thinking <laughs> about energy conservation? Yes. <laughs> so you know, I, think that, I think this concept needs to be thought of much more broadly than it is here. And, and I think that that's, that's an important issue. In fact, um, in, in, uh, in many cases, you can use this in, in very non-intuitive ways. For example, if you uh, have a handicapped person and they're not walking like a normal person, what do you do? Do you try to force them in their altered morphology because of a disease to try to move more like a healthy individual? Or do you take advantage of these kinds of mechanisms for their particular movements to allow them to exchange energy more effectively? And I think the answer is clearly you need to think about that, that exchange. So in any kind of sport or, or activity, I think that that's a, a really critical principle to, to think about. And people have to, you know, to some degree, thought about how to do this effectively. But uh, I think it's, it's going to be uh, you know, more important in the, in the future for, for these kind of activities. Okay, he's, he's had a, he's had a, yeah, so. I was wondering, uh, do you have any idea what the efficiencies of the artificial muscles are compared to, like, an actuator, uh, which might uh, come into play for a uh, mobile system or using batteries, et cetera? So yes. if there's much of an efficiency you difference. You ask me um, on Monday, the students are actually measuring it this week, and uh, I don't know, I don't know what the answer is. I. Uh, SRI claims they're pretty high, and I will wait to measure it. So that's a very important question. I don't know the efficiency, but in their tests, it looks it looks it looks really good. It's over 30 percent or 40 percent or something. It's very high, but we'll we'll see when we, we measure it in our apparatus. Last question. 
there? Which one? Yeah, right here. This one. Um, I'm still stuck on the gecko's feet. Uh, yes. You mentioned the smallest feature of that. Uh, the last one's this little spatula shaped. You said about 200 nanometer. Yes. Right? Um, is anything special about the material itself? Say, let's say we can nanofabricate something. That yeah, that's a, that's a really what important kind of protein question. It is. It's, it's, it's keratin. That's what your fingernail's made of. And it doesn't seem to be special in any way that we can tell. And so far, uh, the tests have shown that if you can make a structure with that size, you know, the first very preliminary test made by Ron Fearing, that it looks like it'll stick to. So, and it's not made of keratin. He just made it of a different polymer. So at present, we don't think it's anything special about the keratin, but it remains to be seen. Yeah, that's an important question. Okay, thank you. Thank you.